Children are dismissed to Children's Church at this moment. Um, Open up again to Romans uh, chapter 4, and we're going to be reading this morning verses 18 through 25. Uh, kind of as a disclaimer, I, I said last week we're we're kind of in the middle of the section. So if you feel like you've gotten a mini sermon series on Abraham, uh, that's because this is what Paul has been dealing with uh, through this entire section. And it, uh, I sort of had to divide the passage somewhere or it would have been one really long sermon. Um, so we kind of split it uh, awkwardly here in the middle, uh, but it seemed uh, like a good place to do that. Uh, Romans chapter four, starting in verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that what God was able to do, what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted for us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning from your word, uh, that we would delight ourselves in you and in your word, and that you would feed us and nourish us. Uh, Meet us where we are. I'm sure many of us come in with many trials and challenges and, and struggles. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have something for each one of us, because your word is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword. Please, Lord, give the Holy Spirit to me and, and allow me to have the words to say that, that clearly express what is uh, going on in this passage. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. At some point in your Christian life, you're going to have or you will have or you already have struggled with the faith. I don't have a really creative introduction this morning. That's just reality. At some point, you go through some sort of hardship, and maybe you even find yourself asking in those moments, where is God? He really maybe stretches your faith. He puts you through a series of circumstances that you you would never want to go through if you had the choice. You may find yourself asking, is my faith strong enough in these times? You may find yourself uh, struggling there, you believe in the Lord Jesus, but you're, you're struggling with areas of doubt or maybe moments of, of unbelief. And you may even cry out like that man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We all either will have or have already at some point in our Christian life walked through some sort of difficulty or hardship. The disturbing trend in our culture is to think that the strength of faith is the act of faith itself. That, that sometimes we say to one another, just have faith. And, and we're sort of, we, we mean well, but sometimes the way that gets said and conveyed and meant is sort of just muscle up. You know, toughen it up a little bit. It's all on you and just rely harder. And sometimes people going through hardship feel like, like 
we don't understand when we say those things. We're just kind of turning a blind eye to it and say, just believe harder. And we might even in our own hearts think back, but I am believing. That doesn't make it any easier in those moments. What is the strength of faith? Where is my faith in the Christian walk? We want to ask primarily and answer this question this morning. Why is faith counted as righteousness? You could put it another way. What's so special about faith? How is it that God counts faith as righteousness? And some people have this idea that that what that means is because I can't perfectly obey God, God takes faith instead of obedience. And so I become a good person if I'm just a person of faith. That's not really what Paul is talking about, as we'll see. So how is it or why is faith counted as righteousness? Look at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted as righteousness. The passage is getting at that very question. And then Paul says that this is not just written about Abraham's faith, but it is written for us as well who have received a righteousness in Christ. So why is it that faith is counted as righteousness? And if there's one thing we want you to walk away from today is do not trust faith. Trust Christ. Do not have faith in faith, but we are exhorted to have faith in Christ. It is the object of faith that makes the difference. So why is faith counted as righteousness? First, this morning, faith believes the word of God and the power of God. We live and I've been saying this the number of times the last few weeks and you probably feel like I'm repeating myself, but but we absolutely live in a culture that the value of faith is seen in the act of faith itself. It doesn't matter who you believe in. It doesn't matter if your belief systems are different as long as you're a person of faith. I can buy a lottery ticket and have faith that I will win the lottery. But it doesn't do me any good. I can go up on the roof and and stand up there and have faith that if I I jump off, I will be able to fly and I can believe with every ounce of my being. And faith doesn't accomplish anything in that sense. It's whom you're trusting in that matters. Faith believes the word of God and the power of God. So Abraham's faith was Hope against hope. Look at verses 18 and 19. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I think a simple analogy, a simple illustration of the type of faith that Abraham had is to contrast it with another biblical event. Remember Peter? Remember when Jesus is walking on the water and coming out to Peter and Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me, tell me to come out there and and I'll come out and walk on the water. 
Now, now Peter had, that's quite a bit of boldness, to put it mildly, on the part of Peter. And Peter often, I think, spoke before his mind thought. But he does. He gets out on the water and he begins to, to walk towards Jesus on the water. And what happens? He looks to the left and to the right and sees the storm and the crashing waves. He takes his eyes off the object of faith. He takes his eyes off the, the object of hope and he begins to sink. I would submit to you that walking on the water is hope against hope. It just doesn't happen. It's not normal. You are believing in a miracle and the power of God to do these things. And Peter wavered in his faith. The contrast would be Abraham. Abraham here, it says he believed against hope. He has hope against hope that we should, that he should become the father of many nations. From a human and physical or a biological perspective, there was no way that Abraham and Sarah could have a kid. Their, their bodies were as good as dead. The, the idea here of Sarah's womb being barren could literally be her womb was dead. Abraham's body was as good as dead. Now, Abraham was still living, but you know what happens to reproductive systems when you reach a certain age. And they are in their 90s here. Abraham is almost 100 uh, when they finally have Isaac. If you are a woman or a couple, and maybe even if you've struggled uh, with infertility, I'm, I'm sure you can identify with the emotions Sarah faced through these times in her life. However, in the story in Genesis, in the events, the point is, at this time, she is beyond hope. It is not going to be a natural process if she has a child. God will literally have to do a miracle just as he brings people back from the dead in one of his in many of his miracles. So you think of someone who has died and you can't you can't coax their body back to life. You can't give it some medicine and say, hey, uh, come on, get alive here. If they are dead, it is done. It is over. It is finished from a human perspective. But obviously, we worship a God who can raise the dead. And that is the analogy going on here. God is going to have to impart new life into their womb. And so it says Abraham trusted the word of God. Verse 20 and 21. Now unbelief made him waver. No unbelief, excuse me, made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. I really think that Abraham did grow in his faith. We find in Genesis 17, 17, that when one of the first occasions when, uh, excuse me, one of the second or third occasions when Abraham finds out that Sarah is going to have a child, we find that it says he fell on his face and laughed. This is after Genesis 15, 6, where he has already believed the promise of God. Then he gets a more revelation that it's going to be through Sarah. And, and he does have to grow in his faith. But at the heart of it, along the way, even though he he does laugh at this occasion, he, he doesn't waver in his faith. He doesn't call God a liar. He doesn't come down and say, there's no way that God can do this. 
So the impossibility of the circumstances did not ultimately cause Abraham to doubt. Why? Because he understood the character of God. He understood the one in whom he was believing. We sing in the hymn, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded, what? That he is able to do that which he promised. We know that God is trustworthy. It is not the strength of my faith, but it is the one to whom I direct my faith. God is first trustworthy and God is second all powerful. If he says he's going to do something, he will not only do it because he's trustworthy, but he actually has the power to do it. You can take the promises of God to the bank, as it were. Hebrews chapter 6 says this of Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What are the two unchangeable things here in which it is impossible for God to lie? God's character is unchangeable. We live in a world where things change all around us. Things change so fast that that it is hard to keep up with everything. Uh, Technology. Uh, I used to be pretty good at it. Now I'm at the age where my kids are better at using the iPod and the iPad than I am. It changes so rapidly and there's always something new coming out. And you're always shifting. God is unchangeable. We live in a culture where the moral foundation is shifting rapidly. And, and you don't know from one day to the next what the culture is or isn't going to find offensive. It's funny, it's almost humorous sometimes who, who the, those who are on the quote-unquote cutting edge of, of moral arguments regarding whatever social issue one day we'll be on the cutting edge and we're thinking as Christians, well, that's just wrong. The next day, there are other people that are out even farther calling to account the people who the day before were on the right. The, the morals change so quickly in our society. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's the way that it is. But God's character is unchanging. So not only is God's character unchanging, but he gives an unchangeable oath. He guarantees it by his own name. The two things that are impossible in which are impossible for God to lie are God's unchanging character and his unchanging word. When he says he will do something, he will do it. You and I, in our faith, we trust 
the character of God. We trust the Word of God. That God is our secure foundation. That the morals that we should have, the understandings that we should have, the beliefs that we should hold come from the unchanging Word of God, which comes from the unchanging character of God. I'm not saying that we won't grow in our understanding of the Word from time to time, but what I am saying is that the core of it, God Himself does not change. So God does not make blind, empty promises. You think again of the hymn, My faith looks up to Thee, Thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior Divine. Now hear me when I pray. Take all my guilt away. You see, the strength of faith is not the internal virtue of having faith. Uh, Faith is is more than a feeling, uh, to kind of pun off the song there. Faith is, is not optimism as we think of it. Faith is not looking on the bright side of life. Is it, is it good to be an optimist? Yes. You know, there's nothing wrong uh, with that. Although sometimes we need a good dose of reality. But that's not ultimately what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not just positive thinking. We all walk around with a smile on our faith because, face because we are people of faith. You may, as a Christian, feel miserable. Genuine faith weathers the hard times because it looks to the character of God. Faith is directed outside of yourself. Again, you may feel miserable at times. You may feel hopeless. You may feel despair. It doesn't mean that's what the truth is, but you may, in your various phases of life, Feel the pressure of life. Go through genuine hardships that no amount of smiling and just thinking good thoughts will will take away the hardship. Sometimes the idea of telling people just have faith, we sometimes are almost saying to them, just think happy thoughts. I'm not trying to tell you to give up on faith. I'm trying to direct you to what true faith is. True faith is looking at the unchangeable God. That when we do have storms of life, we are not pulling ourselves up by our own feelings that we feel inside. I think I can trust God. We are looking to the One who guarantees His promises with an oath. Even the weakest faith in Christ grasps the strongest Savior. It's not your strength. It's not your ability. You are looking at the One who grabs you and saves you. You need to trust the Word of God and the the power of God. God promises He will not abandon His children. And you may very well be at phases in your life or go through times where you feel abandoned. That doesn't mean you are abandoned. And in those moments, relying on your own strength will not cut it. If your idea of faith is something that you muster up inside of yourself, trials will shipwreck your faith. Faith looks to the rock. 
faith looks to the unchangeable one. And so there are times in our life where we're going through despair. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, you, you need to preach to yourself. And, and you might, what, what does that mean? It means you take out a passage of Scripture and you read it. And you read it out loud, maybe. And you remind yourself what it says. And maybe you even have to quite literally say to yourself, Tim Bertolette, this is a promise of Scripture and you can trust God in it. Maybe you need to read some of the Psalms and you need to use that language, how how the psalmist pours out all of his emotions in the despair. And you also need to see how he comes through the various Psalms to to trust in something outside of himself and beyond his circumstances. You might have to tell yourself the promises of God. Now, don't make up promises. Don't use the false promises that people will tell you. You know, if you just believe in God, you'll be rich and all of those things. I'm I'm talking about the literal, real promises that are written down in Scripture. You may have to lament and show genuine emotion and cry out to God on your bed. The psalmist David often talks about tears and groaning, sleepless nights. Maybe some of you have been there. But faith is looking to God, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to the promise. You remember your salvation. You remember your redemption. You remember the coming glorification. Even you might have something that death is at work in your life. You are dying. Someone you love is dying. But there is a resurrection. And your hope is not sort of a Your faith is not sort of a a goofy platitude in those moments. Believe that it will just all work out in the end. Your hope is in God who works all things for His glory according to His purposes. Do you you see the difference? I hope you do. I hope you see the the subtlety that, that goes on in our culture that many people talk about being a people of faith. But is their faith the object of their faith in the living and true God. You need to know that your faith is anchored in the unchangeable one, in the one in whom you can trust, in the one who could call back to life the dead womb of Sarah and give them the child, the seed, the heir, just as he had promised, so that one day the Lord Jesus Christ could come from one of the great, great, great grandsons of Abraham. According to the flesh, Jesus was born of the line of Abraham. And that's because God kept His promise. Second, this morning, faith is reckoned as righteousness because it looks to and trusts God. Why is Abraham's faith counted as righteousness? Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith is counted as righteousness because he believes a promise of God. Faith, try to be real careful here with the language, but but hear me out. Faith doesn't make Abraham righteous. Rather, it is by faith that Abraham is reckoned or counted or considered to be righteous. It is not as if, since I can't be righteous, God takes my faith, 
and counts that as godliness. Otherwise, it wouldn't be true when it says God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You know this. It is not as if I do a bunch of good works, obeying God in some way, being godly, and then God says, you are good enough, and then says, now you're righteous. And that is true of what faith does. Faith is not us being righteous, and then God says, well, now that's who you really are. Faith is us looking at God and asking for a gift that is outside of yourself. You see, I'm dead in my sins. And having spiritual life is something that is impossible for me. I am beyond hope in my spiritual condition. Just as Abraham and Sarah were beyond hope, in a sense, in their physical condition. But God makes a promise. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So you trust in the God who raises the dead And we trust in God and He brings to life that which is lifeless. We look outside of ourselves and we trust the promise. You see, you and I are ungodly. And we look to the foot of the cross. And we look up to heaven and we see the promise that God has made. And we see the outworking of that promise that Jesus Christ died to pay for my sins. And He rose again for my justification. And we put our trust in Him. Our ungodliness doesn't suddenly become godly. Rather, God from on high pronounces a verdict and declares us righteous. In other words, my faith is not me trying to become godly or become righteous. My faith is saying, I am ungodly. I am unrighteousness. And God... I need something from you. I have nothing to offer you and I need a gift. I need a miracle. I need you to work life where there is nothing but death. And if I'm relying on myself, if Abraham and Sarah were relying on themselves for the promise to come about, it wouldn't happen. They do try that. In chapter 16, Sarah says here, go sleep with my servant Hagar. And you have Ishmael and You know what kind of mess that becomes. In the same way, you and I cannot work our way up to the promises of God. We call out in faith. And a gift of righteousness is given to us. This is the idea here behind the word to reckon, to count, to consider. It's the Greek word logizomai. That God transfers, as it were, puts something on our account that isn't inherent to me. God is not saying my faith is righteousness now. God is saying my faith has been uh, received through faith. I've received the gift of righteousness. The righteousness is the verdict that comes from God. Do you understand the distinction? I I know we're we're getting here pretty deep into the text, but, but this matters. When you stand before God, on what basis do you come into His presence? You come with a righteousness that is not your own. 
that is a gift from God. You have received it through faith, just as you might take a a present into your arms, but you didn't work on it in your life because of faith. See, faith doesn't merit anything. Faith receives something that is outside of myself. And that's what it means to say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That I'm getting something that I do not deserve. That I am receiving a gift that is not inherent to me. But I get all the righteousness that I need to stand before God. Abraham's faith counted as righteousness is written for us as well. Look at verse 24. Uh, look at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Verse 24. But for ours also. Now, there's an obvious difference here between the faith of Abraham and the faith that we have. Abraham is living before the coming of Jesus. So he's hearing the promise, he's hearing about the seed, and he's trusting that God will do something. And in the the scope of Genesis, this this seed promise ultimately becomes a promise of the Messiah. Our faith is a little bit different in the sense that we look back to what God has already done. In other words, two different times that these acts of faith take place. One before the cross, One after the cross. But you know where they're the same? They are the same kind of saving faith. Abraham was looking to God outside of himself and trusting that God alone saves sinners. We are looking to God outside of ourselves and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that in Christ, God alone saves sinners. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say? Abraham gained our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Verse three, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's entire argument hangs on the fact that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is one way to be saved. That's by grace alone, received through faith alone. And that faith is directed ultimately at the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, this morning, faith looks towards the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and righteousness. So we're not just believing in some vague concept of God. Lots of people will say, yes, I believe in God. We are believing specifically in the God of the Bible, the God whose eternal Son is the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us to accomplish our salvation. We are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him and you shall be saved, the Scriptures say. Uh, Look at verse 24. He says, but this is for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Notice here that the focus of faith is faith in God. However, 
It's also faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22 The righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Galatians 2.16 For we know that a person is, justi- is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. All of this language of justification or being reckoned a righteousness or being counted as righteousness, all of it's the same sort of language. Slightly different Greek words, but the same concepts. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through believing in Him that we receive a gift of righteousness that is not our own righteousness, but is something that a verdict that comes from God through the work of Christ. So Abraham's faith was in God and he believed that what God had promised God would do, uh, God would actually do it. And by implication here in the scope of Genesis, as I mentioned, it's a faith that looks ultimately towards Jesus. But notice sort of the similarities here again. Abraham believed that God had to bring his body and his wife's body back to life, so to speak. What do we believe about the Lord Jesus? What is so unique about the Christian faith? We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We believe He died on the cross, but here the focus is that He rose again. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. It is a faith specifically in the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse uh, 17 of chapter 4. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. Resurrection and belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is foundational to the Christian faith. If you do not believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you do not know the living and true God. If I can borrow from the words of Jesus in one of the Gospels, you do not know the word of God and you do not know the power of God. That God the Father raised the Son from the dead after the Son had made the perfect sacrifice for sins. Romans 10.9 Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That in His human nature He did not stay dead. He's the eternal Son of God, but He also died as a human being. And He came back to life. 1 Corinthians 15.14 If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, if, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, go home, we're not having church next week. I'm up here and I'm just spouting nonsense, is what Paul is saying. 1 Corinthians 15.17 If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. How do you know 
that your faith isn't futile in hard times? How do you know when you don't see it? How do you know that God will actually do what he promised he will do? There are times in life you won't be able to understand why God is allowing things to happen. Why this hardship on me? Why now? Why does it have to hurt so much? But you are trusting in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And he will walk you through that trial. And he may strengthen you. And he may stretch you. And that loved one may die. Things may not work out the way you wanted in the end. But Christ does not abandon his own. Any more than God the Father abandoned Jesus Christ when he was in the grave. God raised him from the dead. And if you are in Christ, you will be raised to new life. Your hope is secure because God has promised it. And what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will also carry out in you. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And here we're going to begin to see the the union that we have with Christ. So that what happens to Christ, his death, his resurrection is so connected to me as I put my faith in him, as I receive the gift. It is just as if those things have happened to me. Verse 25, For He who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our our justification. Jesus Christ was put to death because of my trespasses. There's an obvious allusion here to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Uh, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he sees his offspring. He shall prolong his days. It was the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong. For he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ goes to the cross because of our sin. And when he is dying on the cross, the one who is innocent the one who does not deserve death and should not have died by human standards. He is dying because of the plan and purpose of God. And he is paying the punishment for our sins. He is bearing upon himself the weight of transgression. He had no sin in himself. But the Scriptures say that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? It means the punishment that we deserve is poured out on Jesus on the cross. He pays for all the guilt. Jesus is never a sinner Himself. But the guilt is transferred to Him. 
The punishment comes upon him. It's just as if he had done that. But he takes what is ours for us. He dies. He's delivered up, handed over to death for our trespasses. Christ is reckoned. Christ is accounted as a sinner because of our trespasses. So that when we believe in Him, we are assured that our sins have been taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am connected to Him. I am in union with Him. And my sins are placed upon Him. But also, His righteousness is now reckoned to me. Notice the language. He is raised for our justification. Notice the parallel language. He was delivered for our trespassage. He is raised for our justification. Now, let me say this. The resurrection is as theologically important as the cross. So on the one hand, we often spend time thinking about the resurrection. We often say, well, how do we know that it happened? And that's a very important discussion, and and I'd love to go into that with you sometime. But also remember, theologically, things happen because of the resurrection. Think about the cross, right? We believe that the cross of Christ happened. We believe that Jesus Christ actually physically died on the cross. His body was there. He died. He was literally put in the grave. But then we say there are theological things that happen because of it. Sin is paid for, right? That's a, that's a theological statement. We didn't see anyone physically carrying up sin and handing it to Jesus on the cross. We didn't see Jesus pulling out a wad of cash and saying, hey, I'm paying for it now. We, we know from Scripture, because Jesus is there, theologically, something is happening. Our sins are being paid for. The same is true with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it happened, something now is happening. People are being saved. We can come and receive justification. The declaration of righteousness. So, Christ has to rise from the dead if we are to have the verdict of justification. It's not just enough to say Jesus Christ paid for my sins when He died. Because if He stayed dead, how do I know that I have new life in Christ? How do I know I can stand before God and the work of Christ is finished? Well, yes, Jesus said it is finished on the cross, but how do I know that death isn't still winning? Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And in Acts chapter 13, uh, as Jesus is raised from the dead, it's a fulfillment of God saying to Jesus, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. In Romans 1.4 it says that He is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. The resurrection of Jesus is His vindication that He actually paid for sin. And God says in effect to him, rise out of the grave, my son. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You're the perfect one who obeyed me. Rise up, be vindicated. Jesus Christ is the righteous one who rises from the dead. 
So in 1 Timothy 3.16, it actually says Jesus was manifested in the flesh. That's his earthly coming. But he's vindicated by the Spirit, which I think is a reference to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit uh, enabling him to rise from the dead. And it literally could be translated, he is justified by the Spirit. That doesn't mean Jesus needed to be saved from sin like we are when we're justified. But what it means is he was vindicated. God declared him to be righteous. Again, Isaiah 53. We forget sometimes the resurrection is in Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, God, shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant. Who's the my servant there? Jesus. What does God call Jesus there? Not just my servant, but what? The righteous one. It says, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You are secure in righteousness when you receive it through faith because it is the righteousness of Christ. How do I know? Because Jesus Christ was declared the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And the same verdict that Jesus is given, resurrection, new life, well done, my good and faithful service. You're righteous. Rise from the dead. You had no sin. You've paid for it all. It is the same verdict that is transferred over to you when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to get to heaven and God were to say, Why should I let you into my presence? Why should you stand here before me? The answer is Christ is the righteous one. And I trust Christ. You see, it's not the strength of your faith. You don't say to God, I'm here today because of my faith. You say, I'm here because of Him in whom I have trusted. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Isaiah 53.10, For he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. It is with a view to those for whom Jesus is going to save who believe in him. It is with that in view that Jesus is raised from the dead. And His life is the guarantee of your life. Older theologians talk about righteousness as being imputed. I've kind of avoided that term because who uses imputed in their daily language? Uh, Extra credit to you if you can use it on the street in a conversation tomorrow without saying my pastor said imputed in the sermon. We don't talk that way. But it's an important truth. And it's this idea that righteousness is reckoned to me. That the verdict given is now transferred over and placed upon me. I'm still ungodly. I'm still a sinner. But the guilt of sin has been paid for. And the righteousness that I need to stand before God is a, is on me already. It's, it's a verdict. The judge has ruled 
you're not guilty. The mystery of the Gospel is God justifies, He declares righteous those who are ungodly. But the reason He can do this is only because of the work of Christ. God doesn't look at your faith and say, you're strong enough. I'll give you righteousness. God looks to the one in whom you place your faith and say, Christ is righteous. And you've trusted in Christ. And in your justification, you put on the robes of Christ's righteousness. Now, in your behavior, in your practice, in your Christian walk, there's this process that we talk about. We call it sanctification. It means you will grow in in obeying God. You will grow in practical acts of of doing what is right. That's a kind of righteousness. But in terms of standing before God, you will never have enough obedience in and of yourself. In terms of standing before God, in terms of going into heaven, you will go into heaven because Christ died for your sins and He rose again for your righteousness. And the righteousness that he rose up in, behold the Son, displayed in power of the resurrection, the perfect righteous one, my servant, is the same verdict that we have on us now if we believe in the Lord Jesus. God can look at us and in effect say, behold my righteous one. Not because I am righteousness. Oh, I'm such a sinner. But because the gift has come over to me. It's been reckoned on me. It's been transferred. Just like you might transfer funds from one bank account into another. Just as you might transfer a verdict from one person to another. You have the righteousness of Christ. Because He was handed over for your trespasses. And He was raised for your justification. Why is faith counted as righteousness? Because of the power of Jesus to exhaust my punishment and the resurrection that accomplished the basis for me to be declared righteous. We sing again the hymn, My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living ones. His wounds for me shall plead. Do you have that kind of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know for certain that He is pleading right now in heaven on your behalf? That He stands as your representative? That you have put a personal trust in Him? And you have said, I believe Your Word. Save me. I understand that You died on the cross for sin. I'm a sinner. I believe that You rose again from the dead. Come into my heart and wash me whiter than snow. If you have done that, you get the gift of righteousness. If you are at any point in your Christian walk, you've already believed this, you will always have the same amount of that gift of righteousness lavished out on you because it is the righteousness of Christ. If you are going through doubts and struggles, look to Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. 
And he is the merciful and faithful high priest who will hear you in your hour of need. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come into your presence this morning. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be at work. That we would rest secure in the righteousness that we have from Christ. Even now as we, we take communion and we see the, the signs and symbols of, of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have a confidence in you, Jesus, that your body was broken for us, that your blood was poured out on the cross because of our transgressions, because we sinned and deserved the wrath of God, a, a just and fair punishment for everything wrong that we've done. And yet, Father God, you were pleased in your love to send forth your one and only Son. And the Son was pleased to obey the Father and show his love for us as well. And he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. We pray that you would work this gospel, this good news, this wondrous truth, that you would work it out daily in our lives, that we would respond regularly to the grace, that you would build us up in faith, that we would know that you are the great and mighty rock who does not abandon his children. Oh, you have been so good to us, God. We have nothing that we can give back to you. So as we celebrate communion, we proclaim the Lord Jesus' death until he comes. If there are any hearing my voice today, Lord, that have never placed their faith and trust in you, I pray that in these moments you would open their eyes, that they would see the glory of God in the face of Christ, how wondrous this death and resurrection is, how necessary it was so that we might be saved and enjoy the presence of God. We praise you, Lord Jesus. As we take communion, strengthen us in our faith, build us up, direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in heaven and remind us that in our hearts we are united to him. Pour down spiritual blessings upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion now at this time.